from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Paul Dimmick. I'm an elder currently serving on session here at First Presbyterian Church. Would you please join me in the call to worship? Oh God, you are righteous. Reform us, reconcile us, and transform us by your word. Friends, let us worship God. Please turn in your pew Bibles to Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11 which is found on page 186 in the New Testament. Listen to God's word. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 19 through 22, which begin on page 108 in the New Testament in your pew Bibles. Hear again God's word. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, today is the day we close out our two-month sermon series that has introduced us in general to our long-range strategic plan entitled On the Way to 175, and in particular has tried to elevate the 12 values that we hope motivate and solidify our faith and life together over the next six to seven years. Uh, this sermon series really is just the what philosophers would call the prolegomena. It's really just the first thing we need to say and a lot of things that we will say and be a part of in the days 
ahead, especially as we begin to invite the congregation in the coming weeks to align with and to engage with and support the realization of the seven goals that anchor this long-range plan that, Lord willing, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will be made manifest as we approach our 175th anniversary in 2023. And so as we close this series, we do so by focusing in on the final two values of our plan, bold humility and missional living. Bold humility and missional living. Now, one of the important contextual realities that is hopefully addressed by these uh, two values uh, is the reality and the impact of secularism. The reality and the impact of secularism and how it meets us and, and forces us to consider this, uh, this notion, this idea in this present moment. Uh, it was not lost on the long-range strategic planning team that we are, in fact, living in an increasingly secular age. That was part of the conversations we had throughout the year that we met, and we were keen on identifying this reality in which we live in some measure, in some fashion, within the plan itself. It made itself known, in fact, under the heading of this value, bold humility, where we acknowledge our dependence on God as we follow the example of Jesus Christ in an increasingly secular world. It was important for us to not be naive to the times, to this present age in which we live that is very much secular. Now, a question, not for verbal response, but just for contemplation. When you hear the word secular, what do you think of? Just in your own mind right now, when you hear that word secular, what, what comes to mind? Some of us of a certain age uh, might think about the blue laws. They might think about the days when Sundays were protected, when stores and and theaters and shops could not be accessed on the Sabbath day, on the Lord's day, on Sunday. And so if we're of a certain age, we, we think that secularism begins to creep in maybe as those blue laws uh, pass us by. And where uh, Sunday, as one of our team members said, is just another Saturday. Sunday has lost its sacredness. Some of us, when we hear the word secular, might think of the way that God has sort of been banished, or at least God talk has been banished from the public square, whether it's in public education or, or political life or, or in professional spheres and sectors of our living. God talk just doesn't exist that much anymore. God is vacant from these important spheres of our existence. What do you think about when you think of the word secular? Uh, in his book, A Secular Age, historian Charles Taylor set out to define the essential nature of secularism 
Uh, in part, not by looking at the blue laws per se, not by looking at, at sort of the, the lack of God talk in the public square, in the public arena. Those are just symptoms of, of, of a deeper uh, issue at work, the secularism at work. What Taylor wants to say, if you really want to understand secularism, you have to understand the difference between the porous self, like a sponge, the porous self, and the buffered self. Don't look to, the, to sort of the outworkings, the existential realities of secularism. Look to the philosophical underpinnings of it and you will find what it is we are dealing with in this secular age. The poorest self, he says, is the person who believes that outside forces or spirits or, or magic or gods or in the Christian sense, God and God's self has the ability to act upon us. That there are forces out there in, in the universe, in the world, that we cannot see, but has the power, they have the power rather, to influence us, to direct us, to lead us. See, prior to the Enlightenment, prior even to the Reformation, Western people believed their world was enchanted. And they believed their life was porous and, and vulnerable to outside forces, most notably in Western civilization, the reality and the power of God. That God was alive. That God was not far off. That God was in fact moving and acting by the power of God's Spirit in the day-to-day -day affairs of the world. But Taylor says since the end of the Middle Ages, we've become increasingly more and more buffered. We've become more self-contained even as our world has become more and more disenchanted. In other words, we've come to believe that there are no external forces sort of out there, no forces in the world, in the universe, that are at work, moving, or, or acting. What we do and what we think is purely a result of our chemistry. It's our biological makeup. It's our DNA. It's the neurons firing in our brain and, and all of this chemical reaction that makes up who we are physically is just a response uh, to the natural world in which we uh, inhabit. That's who we are. Nothing more, nothing less. There are no outside forces that, that come upon us. There's nothing from the outside that directs meaning and purpose in our lives. Meaning and purpose is contrived internally. There's nothing that, that is speaking to us from the outside. It's all within us to create life. There are no external factors, no spirits, no gods that move us, direct, direct us rather, or act upon us. We are buffered independently contained, self-determined agents. And this, argues Taylor, is the essence of secularism. It's not the blue laws. It's not the absence of God talk in the public square. It's how we have abandoned this notion that we are porous. That there is a word from the outside that can speak to us and direct us and guide us. We have traded that identity for a buffered self where we are who we are and we make meaning with what we got. When the world is no longer enchanted, there is no need for Christians to talk about God's intervention 
or God's actions in our lives or in the world because it just doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. Maybe uh, taking a different vantage point might help us dig a little deeper here into this idea. Richard Dawkins is, is a name that many of you know. He's the famed uh, scientist, atheist, and outspoken critic of religion. Uh, he has been uh, very forthright in his criticisms of Christianity and faith in general. I found it interesting, therefore, knowing his work, that a couple of years ago, about three years ago, he was on a panel. He was being uh, interviewed by the facilitator and he began to describe himself in these terms. He called himself a secular Christian. A secular Christian. Dawkins is not a believer in the truest sense of that word, the way that we would understand it in the Christian tradition, but he still admits his nostalgia for the rites and rituals of historic Christianity, especially the Anglicanism of his youth. He's fond of it. He likens this nomenclature to someone who self-describes as a secular Jew. We probably have friends who are Jewish who would describe themselves as a secular Jew, right? They don't believe in the metaphysical or the spiritual aspects of that narrative, but they certainly identify with the traditions and the habits and the practices and the ethnic and narrative identities that are born out of that faith. In other words, what Dawkins is saying by, by calling himself a secular Christian, he's, he's basically maintaining his buffered self. He's maintaining this buffered life. He does not believe that God can act or move or speak in the world. And he sees his affinity for faith as simply uh, as an affinity, rather, for ceremonies and moods, for routines and rituals that possess, for him at least, some sort of cultural or social import. Now, by the way, Richard Dawkins, who is, who is well thought of himself as someone who is avant-garde, he certainly didn't invent this notion of secular Christianity. I mean, it uh, has its roots in Christian theology itself. Back in 1799, the father of liberal Christianity, a German named Friedrich Schleiermacher, he wrote a book. That's a real German name, Jan Schleiermacher. He wrote a book in defense of Christianity, not as a theological idea, not as a faith, but more as sort of a cultural product as something that can add cultural value to the world. He said, look, religion we know is more of a feeling than it is a fact, and it has to do more with the infinite and questions that we can, can't answer than it does with the, the scientific world and the natural world. And, and so what we need to do is basically what he said is we need to shift our focus away from questions like who is God and what is God doing in the world to questions like, well, who am I and what am I doing in the world? And he said that is the, 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 the social and cultural import of Christianity. Let's move away from these metaphysical questions about who God is and, and sort of this, this movement of the spirit and ideas in that realm. And, and let's just talk about what we can do in the temporal world. This is the essence of liberal Christianity. It's what births the social gospel movement of the 20th century, where, where theologians and pastors began to move away from individuals' right relationship with God and individual salvation 
And the notion that God wants to have a personal relationship or be involved in a, in a clear and present way with the individual in the community of faith and began to move toward saving the systems, saving these entities that were bigger than, than people, not so much concerned about redemption of individuals, but the redemption of society itself. This has continued to be the guiding principle of many North American mainline churches. Not so much worrying about the individual's relationship with God or even the, the church's community relationship with God and discerning where God is moving and acting in the world. It, 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 the questions have changed. That's not the question anymore. The question is, what should we do as a church? And the focus has become about us. It's not about what God is doing in the world. It's not about how God is acting and moving and speaking. It's about what we do to make the world a better place. Now, I'm not saying that that is something that we should not care about. Of course, we should bear witness to the testimony of, of who God is and what God is doing. But that is precisely the point. It's not that God is sort of sitting back watching us from a divine rocking chair somewhere out there and leaving it all up to us. No, the, the mission of God is still active and present in the world. And we're called not to look to ourselves, but to look to an act of God, a God who is alive, a God who wants to be in relationship with you and me and wants to speak to us and lead us. This openness, this poorest life is, of course, the life that Jesus himself embodied, right? I mean, hopefully we know this. We're reminded of it again as Johnny read this text for us from the Apostle Paul in his correspondence to the church at Philippi. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, he says, who though he was in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Jesus, the, the, the very incarnation of God, the, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is porous. He's open to God's will and spirit directing him. He doesn't see his life as a buffered life. He doesn't say, I've got it all here. He, he empties himself. In, in the Greek, the word is kenosis. One of my favorite words in, in the Greek New Testament it means not only just to empty yourself, it's not just about subtraction, but it's to empty yourself for the sake of being filled by something else. You see, Jesus saw his life as porous. He empties his own will, he empties his own desires, and he is filled from the outside in with the very will and mission and spirit of God. That is the model. That's when we're talking about bold humility. That is what we're talking about when we talk about the example the example of Jesus Christ being utterly dependent upon God, not be buffered, but be opened to God's word speaking directly into your life and in my life for the sake of the world. We're not called to be buffered selves. We're not called to be secular Christians. We're not called to be people of ceremonies and moods. We're called to be obedient and open and, and porous. I mean, for some of us, I'm sure we... We come to a place like this, we come to worship, and I'm sure that for some of us, it has been more about nostalgia. 
For some of us, it's not about what God is doing or acting or speaking, but it's sort of more about the feeling that we get about being here. Or maybe it's, it's sort of the moral culture of, uh, of sort of the Judeo-Christian ethic that we're attached to, and we want, our, we want our kids to have it. But we miss it. We miss it when that's all there is. Because what God wants to do is God wants to speak into our lives. God wants to speak into the life of the church. God wants to direct us. God is doing mission. God is alive and well and calls us to participate beyond a faith of ceremony, moods, and morals. I, I will close with this. Um, this Gospel of John text, you know, we're starting Lent so, and we're, uh, we're looking at the resurrection. We'll get there again in about seven weeks. But this is the resurrection uh, appearance, the following the resurrection, where Jesus appears to his disciples. And I love this image of the upper room being locked. Because I, know, I don't know if it connects to you, but it connects to me in, in sort of the temptation to be a buffered self, right? My life is kind of locked. My life is kind of locked in, and I, I've got everything I need right here. And, and it's a great image. It's a great metaphor for the buffered self, for the secular age, the the secular age puts a lock on the door and says, hey, this is all you are. This is who you are. You're just a makeup of chemicals and a brain. And, and as you relate to the natural world, that's your existence. But then the gospel writer John says this. And then Jesus appeared. He suddenly appeared. Right? It doesn't say he like, took a bobby pin out and picked the lock because the door was locked because they were afraid. He just appears. And I believe, friends, I believe that Jesus has that power to show up in the locked doors of our life. I believe that. I believe that, that life was not meant to be buffered. That life was meant to be open to the very spirit of God speaking to us and calling to us. In fact, not only is the room porous, right, but, but Jesus' disciples are porous too. What does he do? He goes up to them and he, and he breathes on them and he he speaks the Holy Spirit over them, and they receive the Spirit. And what does he say? He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Friends, my hope and prayer as we wrap up this series and as we continue to journey on in this long-range plan, on the way to 175, as we approach 2023, and as we look at that wonderful year celebrating our 175th anniversary, that we would take the focus off of ourselves. And that we would focus on the mission of God. And we would ask the question, what is God up to? What is God calling us to do? Where is God sending us? What does God want to speak in and through us? Can we hear God say over these next six, seven years, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. May our lives be porous and open to that spirit for the journey ahead, even our journey, even into our journey to celebrate our 175th anniversary. Church, amen? Amen. amen. amen.
this long-range strategic plan on the way to 175 should keep our focus on what God is doing. It's about what God is doing and what God will do in and through us for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. So may our hearts and our minds and our lives be porous in this coming season. And may we be ready to hear this word of peace that is spoken over us, this receiving of the Holy Spirit and this commission to bear witness to what God is doing in and for the world. And now may the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. May this peace live inside of us this day and every day ahead.